In April 1906, a massive earthquake hit San Francisco, leveling 28,000 buildings and leaving over 200,000 people homeless. One of those people was Anna Amelia Holschauser. Her business was destroyed in the quake and her home was damaged, and in response, Holschauser set up the Mitzvah Cafe a soup kitchen in a nearby park where she fed whoever came by three meals a day, initially with only one can to drink from and one pie plate to eat off. She wasn't alone. Lots of free restaurants popped up all over the city. They cooked up food from groceries and slaughterhouses that donated their entire stocks from dairies who would drop off a few extra milk cans on their way to make deliveries, and from neighbors who pooled the resources of their pantries to make sure everyone had enough. The people of San Francisco didn't just feed each other after the earthquake. They sewed blankets and sheets together to shelter each other. They hauled heavy hoses from the bay into the city as volunteer firefighters. They pulled down houses by hand to create fire breaks that saved whole neighborhoods. They stood watch over what was left of their city, taking long shifts on top of roofs, extinguishing floating embers that threatened neighbors' homes. They created communities of care for one another that many of them remained nostalgic for for the rest of their lives. They thought back on those hard days as a season of delight, when life was a little more the way they hoped it might be. I read Holschauser's story in Rebecca Solnit's book, A Paradise Built in Hell. It's a whole book about the communities that arise in the face of disaster. It turns out that San Francisco in 1906 was not unique. Solnit found the same thing in, after an earthquake in Mexico City and an explosion in Halifax and New York after 9-11 and New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and everywhere she looked after every disaster she studied. She read through the work of disaster researchers, and what she found, she says, was that in the wake of an earthquake, a bombing, or a major storm, most people are altruistic, urgently engaged in caring for themselves and those around them, strangers and neighbors, as well as friends and loved ones. When crisis hits, most of us respond with love and generosity, What she also found in many of those times and in our own time is that the official narrative about disaster, the popular narrative about how people respond to crisis is the exact opposite. That story is one of looting and violence and every person for themselves. It's a narrative amplified by the media and fueled by those in power to justify actions that consolidate that power and excuse the hoarding of relief resources. Among disaster researchers, it's called elite panic. While most of us are caring and kind in crisis, many of us believe just the opposite of ourselves and each other. I didn't need Solnit's book to tell me that because I know it of myself. 
Even as I was impressed by this book and by all the evidence in it, I kept searching for the flaw in her argument, trying to poke holes in her neighborhood narrative, looking for some like gotcha moment to show that the picture she was painting was a little too rosy. While that picture was beautiful and even delightful to read about, there was something I didn't trust about it, something I just generally don't trust about good news. When I'm scrolling through headlines on some news site or past posts on Facebook and I see something that might be construed as good news, I go through this whole series of emotions and I hope I'm not alone in this. I see a story like one that I came across this week, a professional violinist who plays the violin for shelter dogs and apparently they love it. Or the nurse who became a legal guardian of an autistic man so that he could get a heart transplant. Or the video, maybe you've seen it, of the kid who refilled the empty candy bowl on a neighbor's porch from his own trick-or-treat bag so that the kids behind him could get something. I could not type that sentence without crying (laughs) this week. (laughs) When I see something beautiful and inspiring like that, my first reaction is how good it is. It warms my heart. It makes me feel like we, as a whole, are noble and loving beings. And then almost immediately, I start to feel guilty. I second-guess myself. I start to think that that story is manipulative and, and not representative and not really news at all. I rarely bother even clicking on a story like that. And when I do, after a quick cry, I feel even more guilty. Like I've done something wrong. What am I doing giving my attention to stories like that when there's real news? I should be reading. When there are serious and important problems I should be spending my time on. And I know I'm not entirely alone because we have words for stories like those, human interest pieces, clickbait, fluff. Stories that touch us but feel too good to be true. I know I'm not alone because we have a saying, too good to be true. We don't have a saying, too bad to be true. Many of us tend to distrust good news and to distrust it because it's good. I do. When I find a news story delightful, it's exactly that delight that raises my suspicion. Like someone's just telling me what I want to hear. Like if it makes me happy, it must be a lie. And if I want to be smart and serious and reasonable, I should stop paying attention to all that and focus on the real news, the bad news. It's ironic, of course, for someone whose job it is to tell people about the good news of Jesus. But I wonder if something similar hasn't happened to that good news. Jesus' first words in the earliest gospel are, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Over and over again, he talks about bringing people the good news, and unfortunately, neither there nor anywhere else in the gospels does it say what that good news is, which seems like kind of a big oversight. 
What is clear in stories like ours today that Linton read is that whatever the good news is, it must be really good. Because people are drawn to it. They flock to it. Everywhere Jesus goes, crowds follow him. People love his message and spread it. And here in this story, it happens at the very beginning of his ministry. He's just started. And it's compelling enough to fill up the side of a mountain with those who want to hear it. They're gathered there, so many of them, leaning in, hushed to hear the good news. And Jesus speaks up and begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And for the people who have come to listen, mostly the poor and the meek and the mourning, it's good news. It's great news. It's just the news they had been hoping to hear. But whatever those crowds may have thought was Jesus' good news at the time, the church through its history has been sure of one thing. It can't be that simple. The good news can't simply be a story about life that delights us, that tells us a truth that we had been hoping to hear. The good news can't be as straightforward as comfort for the mourning or inheritance for the meek. It can't be the fulfillment of an unspoken hope about ourselves and our neighbors, about what this life is and what it means. Whatever the good news is, it can't possibly be as obvious as news that strikes us immediately as good. Instead, most often, the church has talked about the good news as some version of this story, that human beings are born into sin, all without exception. We are condemned to die an eternal death, or would be, except that God took on a body and allowed us to kill that body in order to pay the blood price that we owed. And now, if we will believe it, we are no longer condemned. I think if you ask most people what the good news of Jesus Christ is, you'd get some version of that story, whether they believed it or not. But I think it's also true that if you asked them, if you asked someone who didn't grow up in a church, I think they'd say that news sounds kind of bad. Like, not that good. I had my own experience of this last week. When I started thinking about this sermon a few weeks ago, I wrote a devotion of kind of getting the ideas together for the UCC's daily devotional that I write for. You can subscribe online. I told a little bit in that devotion of the story from Solnit's book, and I asked if maybe, maybe God wants us to believe the good news about ourselves that when push comes to shove, most of us behave in ways that are generous and loving, that overall we have been created for good and not evil, just maybe. That devotion came out last Sunday, and as frequently happens, this guy named Jim Link, God bless him, wrote a long, condescending rejoinder to it in the comments section. Jim Link does not like me. <laughs> 
I make a practice of not reading Jim's comments too closely anymore, uh, but from what I could tell, his objection essentially boiled down to, that can't be the good news. He believed I had sold the good news short, that the story of God coming to earth, dying and being raised, could not possibly be for anything so small and inconsequential as that as that in a crisis, we and our neighbors are mostly loving and generous. It has to be for something more significant, something more serious. It's great to love your neighbor, essentially, he said, but isn't it more important to love and worship God, to love Christ who forgives our sins? His point, if I understood it, was that God's good news couldn't possibly be so mundane as a woman setting up a free cafe or a milkman dropping off a can of milk, or neighbors watching over one another's homes, or a musician playing music for dogs, or a nurse going out of her way to save a patient's life, or a kid giving up his Halloween candy, or mourners being comforted, or hungry and thirsty people being filled, or the merciful receiving mercy, or the peacemakers being called children of God. The good news can't be another of those stories about a high school basketball team that works together to get their bench-warming teammate their first score. It has to be more serious than that, more significant, more complicated than just what delights us, what gathers a crowd, what strikes us from the first moment as good. And I agree that that's not all the good news is. It's not just that people care for animals or share their resources or sometimes go out of their way for each other. It's not just a can of milk or a pie plate of stew or a basket scored. It's not only that when push comes to shove, most people are loving and generous, but maybe it's at least that. If that's not the entirety of the good news, it's at least a part of it. That's what I believe. That whatever else the good news is, it's at least news that sounds good to us. And God wants us to believe it. Disaster researchers have found that when people believe the popular story of disaster, the story of looting and violence and every person for themselves, they're more likely to behave selfishly when they're in a crisis. The more you believe the bad news about others, the more bad news there is to believe. And it turns out the reverse is also true. The more you trust those frivolous, fluffy, too-good-to-be-true stories of your neighbors, the more likely you are to live them yourself. The more loving and generous you think others are, the more loving and generous you turn out to be. The more loving and generous the world turns out to be. When we take the good news as seriously as the bad, or maybe even more so because Jesus never said, believe the bad news. When we believe the good news, there is more good news to share of a world of neighbor-loving neighbor. 
when I repent of my over-seriousness, repent of my distrust of kindness and care, repent and believe the good news, the kingdom of God does come near.